We'll be in Luke chapter 15. We're going to try to pick up where we left off last week, and uh, as you're finding your way there, I'll, I'll maybe bring us up to speed. So this last week we began the parables in the, in the 15th chapter of Luke, and it's, there's a theme throughout that that Jesus wants to tell the highly religious people that he's speaking to about things that are lost. And so last week we saw that um, God is, is pictured in this parable like, a, like a, a shepherd who's lost a sheep and a shepherd who's willing to leave his 99 sheep to find that one. And when he finds it, he doesn't scold that sheep. He doesn't you know, berate that sheep or belittle or demean that sheep for running away. Instead, he takes that sheep and he carries it all the way back to where that sheep belongs and rejoices with his friends as we read earlier. And there's this picture of a God who, who isn't out to get you or out to harm you, but instead there's a picture of a God who rejoices when we turn back to Him, when we turn away from the things that we tend to esteem and value more highly than God who created the universe. And when we turn back to Him and recognize His goodness, He doesn't berate us, demean us, or, or punish us. Instead, He celebrates. And our God rejoices when we repent. And there's this other picture of, of a woman who loses a coin that's worth probably about a day's wage. And so she loses a considerable sum and she turns her house upside down until she finds it. And there's this picture again of a God who seeks desperately for the people that he loves and holds dear, wants to draw them near so much so that he's willing to turn things upside down and make them into disarray in order to draw his people back to where they belong. It's this beautiful picture of a God who seeks, a God who goes after. And it's it's a picture, as we saw over the last several weeks, that we think in terms of sometimes if you're a church person, man, um, you'll get this. But if you're not, this is the weird thing that church people do. We we do things that we we call like seeker sensitive. Like we we do things so that people who are seeking God um, might feel welcome and, and, and feel like things are accessible to people who are seeking God. And that's awesome. That's really cool. But it's also not biblical. There's a picture in which we see the, the seeker to which we cater the most is our God and King. God is the seeker. God is the one who is seeking after his people. And this played, I don't know how this plays out for you, but even this last week, I got to, um, got to kind of illustrate this in our own lives. I don't, I don't know how this might have looked for you, but every time you lose something, for me, that's quite often, um, even if it's just momentarily misplacing something that I always carry with me, like a cell phone, um, every time you lose something, you can stop and be reminded as you're looking for that thing, as you're kind of like, where's that, so where did I put it? Remember, stop and go, this is, this is what God is like. This is what God is like. And so this... Um, uh, this last week, several times, um, with, our ha- with our house and our large collection of toys and paraphernalia and princess accessories, um, things often get misplaced. And, and in, in the process of this, um, my daughter loses a Sophia ice princess. It's not important. You know, it, I shouldn't even know that. I'm sorry that I do. But it's misplaced. And so we start combing the house to look for it. And, and I, I got to be reminded and say, hey, hey, baby, th- this, I want you to know this is something that as we're looking for this, I want you to remember this is what God is like. This is what Jesus was sent to us for. This is what we celebrate in Christmas, that that the Son of Man came, and we celebrate in Christmas that he came to seek and save that which was lost. And so I don't know how that plays out for you, but there's this beautiful picture that we see that God is looking and seeking out that which is lost, even if it's actively wandering away and rebelling against him. And the last of these pictures that Jesus paints for us in this chapter is about not a lost coin, not a lost sheep, but a lost son. So I want us to read together in Luke chapter 15. We'll read the last of these parables um, about Jesus and and what he wants us to know about who God is. We'll we'll read through the entire uh, chapter from verse 11 on, and then we'll kind of point out some things, hopefully, about these characters, and then we will go from there. So beginning in verse 11, Jesus wants to tell another parable to this highly religious audience of his And he says in verse 11, There was a man who had two sons. And the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of property that is coming to me. And so he divided his property between them. Not many days later, the younger son gathered all that he had, and he took a journey into the far country. And there he squandered his property in reckless living. And when he had spent everything, A severe famine arose in that country, and he began to be in need. 
So he went and he hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country who sent him into the fields to feed the pigs. And he was longing to be fed with the pods that the pigs ate. And no one gave him anything. But when he came to himself, he said, How many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread? But I perish here with hunger? I will rise and I will go to my father and I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. So treat me as one of your hired servants. And he arose and he came to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion. And he ran and embraced him and kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to the servants, Bring quickly the best robe and put it on him. And put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet. And bring the fattened calf and then kill it. And let us eat and let us celebrate. For my son was dead and now is alive again. He was lost and is found. And they began to celebrate. Now, His older son was in the field. And as he came and he drew near to the house, he heard the music and the dancing. And he called one of the servants and asked what these things meant. And he said to him, Your brother has come, and your father has killed the fattened calf because he has received him back safe and sound. But he, the older brother, was angry. He refused to go in. His father came out and entreated him. But he answered his father, Look, these many years I've served you, and I never disobeyed your command. Yet you never gave me a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours came, who has devoured your property with prostitutes, you killed the fattened calf for him. And he said to him, Son, you are always with me, and all that is mine is yours. It is fitting to celebrate and be glad for this brother, for this your brother was dead and is alive. He was lost and is now found. This is God's word and we believe it will speak to us. I want to spend the rest of our time together kind of digging through this story and maybe unpacking a few things and seeing how they might apply for us. And I hope even as we do this, something that you may have heard me say before, but We're not just reading God's Word, but we're hopefully allowing God's Word to read us. Uh, We're not just examining what the Bible has to say to us, but we're also seeing the ways in which the Bible begins to examine us. And as we do so, I hope that what you see us do on a regular basis, on a weekly basis, you find to be quite simple, if even elementary. Like I open up the Bible, and hopefully you go home and go, man, this guy, he just stands up, he reads the Bible, and then he teaches out of it and talks out of it. I could do that you know what? You are right. And so I hope that not only are we digging into God's Word, but I hope you begin to see this is something uh, that not only do I hope you get the content of what we look through as a group of people, but I hope you begin to see the method in which it's very simple to simply open God's Word and let God speak. So here's the story. It says, from the very beginning, there was a man and he had two sons in verse 11. If there's one thing that I hope you catch from this entire story, it might be this phrase. This is a story, and even the first phrase that Jesus tells us is about two sons. The introduction to this story is there is a story about two sons. Why is that important? That might seem redundant. Well, history kind of bears out that, you know, Aesop tells fables, right? And Jesus, historically, tells parables. And most people know this. They, in fact, some of the most well-known parables that that are known about Jesus, even for people that maybe wouldn't call themselves believers. And even if you yourself wouldn't say you're a follower of Jesus, you probably know that this is a teaching of Jesus that's pretty well known. For instance, the other parable that we see, the parable of the Good Samaritan. This is something that for centuries has has created a movement amongst people who would call themselves followers of Jesus. In fact, the idea of a hospital was built upon this idea that Jesus taught through the parable of the Good Samaritan. It's a parable. Most people know, and when they even say it's a Good Samaritan, in fact, there's a large corporation that, that is devoted to this that headquarters here in Sioux Falls, the Good Samaritan Society. What is that? Why, why was that important? Well, that comes from a teaching of Jesus, a parable of Jesus. 
And this is probably the other of the parables of maybe the top five that is the most well-known amongst people. It's a parable of the prodigal son. Now notice the word prodigal, at least for our purpose today, is nowhere in this passage. That word isn't in there. Right? Parable isn't there. In fact, um, most of the manuscripts you'll find, if, if there's a heading at all, the emphasis is just like the emphasis of the first two stories, the emphases, excuse me, the first two stories. There's a lost sheep, there's a lost coin, and then there's a lost son. And this parable fits right into this, where Jesus is speaking to a bunch of religious people who are accusing him of hanging out with the worst of the worst. And these people begin to condemn Jesus publicly because he seems to spend more time in, rather than with the people who are religious and the people who think they have it all figured out, the people who know the Scripture. Jesus seems to spend more time with the people who are living their lives absolutely and obviously contrarily to the teachings of Scripture. And they begin to criticize Jesus because this Jesus seems to attract crowds of people that are not just religious who seem to have it all together, but he seems to be attracting crowds of people who the rest of the world seems to call outcasts and unworthy. So Jesus wants to illustrate why that is. He doesn't apologize for it. He never says, oh yeah, you're right, my bad, I should spend more time with you religious dudes. Instead, he says, let me tell you why. I want to show you why I am around these people who are in so great need. First, it's to fulfill the prophecies spoken about him that he has been given the power in this day, to speak the good news to the poor. To preach the good news of freedom to the captives. So much so that he says that when the sun sets you free, as we sang earlier, you are free indeed. Not free momentarily, not free temporarily, but this good news gives us freedom. And the reason that Jesus seems to attract these people and hang out with these people is because he wants us to know that that is what God is like. And instead of apologizing to these religious people, he simply says, look, let me tell you what God is like. God is like a shepherd. God is like a shepherd, and, and instead of just hoarding the things he has, he's willing to put at risk that which he has in order to seek out the lost. And he doesn't demean or bemoan or belittle the sheep that he finds that's wandered away. Instead, he takes it, and just like you and me, he takes that which is broken and rebellious and all that is mired and evil and he takes it on his own shoulders, and Jesus in his own life carries it up a hill and dies on a cross for it to bring that lost sheep back to God. Jesus says God is like a woman who loses something, and he seeks desperately for that which is lost, even if it's lost of its own accord. In fact, God is like a father. God is like a father who loves his sons in a particular way. He loves his sons in a particular way. And so there's this picture, even though you may know it as the parable of the prodigal son, that's really more of a, a summary or an explanation than it is something that comes out of this text. So we began last week asking a question. Have you ever lost something? Right, and I probably told you a little more than I, than I should have. I lose things on a regular basis, kind of get, get a little crazy about it. But have you ever lost something? Right? And, and the thing I didn't mention is because I was kind of saving it for today. For those of you who have lost things, yeah, I've lost things. Have you ever, um, have you ever lost a kid? Right? Lost a kid? Okay? Don't, don't judge. Mary and Joseph did it, okay? And that kid turned out okay, right? Safe place, all right? So those of you who have kids, right? Have you ever lost a kid? I mean, this may hurt you. It may bring up hurt feelings. But, but at the very least, it's one of those where I thought she was with you. I thought she was with you. What? And then there's this moment where you go, Ah, and then there's a frantic searching, right? A best case scenario, you find them and you're like, ah, I was sick, I, what? I can't, where, what are you thinking? You just gave your mother a heart attack, right? Because you put it on her, it wasn't you. You weren't freaking out, she was freaking out, right? You lost a kid. It's a big deal. And if you don't have kids, you get Amber Alerts on your phones. It's a big deal. And that's where this story begins. There's a son who, for all Intents and purposes for this father's position is lost. It's gone. And then later we hear a description of the kind of lostness that exists in this son. And so here we go. There's this son, and he goes to his father, and you'll see in the first few verses that we read, he says, hey, father, give me the share of the property that is coming to me. Have you ever known someone that seemed to only like you for what they could get out of you? Right? Have you ever, have you ever felt used? 
ever felt like someone knew you and the only reason they hung out with you is because they had like some expectation of you to do something? In fact, if you stopped doing it, they started feeling like they were the victim and they were offended, right? You're, I don't know if you ever, maybe you've never done this, remember that situation? Um, I mean, it was a few days ago, it was just Thanksgiving. I'm not saying that it would be fresh on your mind or anything. I mean, my family is not that way. Maybe yours is, right? My family's cool. They're perfect, right? But have you ever felt like somebody only wanted something from you and that was the only reason they hung out with you? And what you come to find out is that, you know, if you only hang out with me because we eat at Dairy Queen, then you don't love me. You love Dairy Queen. And this son just skips past the charade and he goes straight for the heart and he just says that to his father. Hey, Dad, you're rich, but there's this problem. You're alive. And I don't get any of that richness until you die. And so, Dad, would you do me a favor? And instead of waiting until you die, how about you just give me what you're worth to me anyway? And the first son comes to the father and he says very blatantly, and here's the subtext, give me your money. Hey, Dad, can you cash in that life insurance policy? Um, never mind the money we set aside to bury you properly, you know, but instead, look, we'll figure something out. You won't matter. Any, you won't care. You're dead anyway. How about you give me all that money that was coming to me after you die? Just go ahead and give it to me now. And he goes to the father, and essentially what he says to the father is, you are as good as dead to me. So, so picture the scenario here. Anytime we see a picture of a father, and it's a beautiful thing that we get to call our God Father. It's a beautiful thing that Jesus regularly refers to God, our Creator and King, as Father. But that also might stir up a whole bunch of things in you that may or may not be helpful. For some of us in this room, the picture of God as Father is not good. It's not helpful. Because your dad, if God is like your dad, we're in trouble, right? And I know for a fact there, even in this room, and certainly in our culture, the idea of father as a loving and dependable person is actually becoming more and more rare. And especially in our most vulnerable communities, the idea of having a father is becoming a minority. having a dad, having a father. And so there's this picture where I realize when we say God is father, we're, we're stepping into territory that's dangerous for us. Because you maybe you don't even know your dad. Maybe your dad left. Maybe your dad was just a workaholic and he loved his work more than you. Maybe, maybe there's something going on there. Maybe for you, the picture of dad is not a good one to start with. And so for you, I have encouraging words. I want to show you about a dad, a God who is a father who is better than yours and mine. Because the truth is, even if you had a good father, there's a sense in which we, we all differentiate our identity from our father, sometimes in a very unhealthy way. Uh, for me, in the 90s, there was an ever-clear song called Father of Mine, um, and it was about uh, a, a guy who, who wrote uh, this just angst-filled, this youthful angst-filled song about his dad who abused him and his mom. Um, and here's the weird thing. I loved that song, right? My dad loved me, never would ever hurt my mom or us, loving, caring father. And yet there was something inside of me that when I heard that song and the last verse, it says, you know, father of mine, tell me, where have you been? You know, and he says, father of mine, tell me, how do you sleep with the children you abandoned and the wife I saw you beat, right? And I don't know why, because I loved my father and he was a good guy. But even in my own rebellious nature against my father, I was like, yeah, yeah, stick it to the man. Even, even though my, my dad my dad's the, the kindest, funniest, walking, talking comedian who loves everyone. There's still a sense in which sometimes, even, even though we may have a good father, we often have a broken picture of who our father is. And I have encouragement for you and for me that our God looks different than an earthly father. In fact, this father that, that, that we see here is actually more like a prodigal than, than a son. And so, for example, the word prodigal simply means spending money or resources freely or recklessly, right? Uh, the best phrase I saw for this, the definition of prodigal is wastefully extravagant. And so I don't know about you, but up until a few years ago, I thought prodigal meant like rebel, like runaway son, okay? And so the parable of the prodigal son was about a runaway son. Well, that's not even what prodigal means. Prodigal means like wastefully extravagant. Okay, spending 
extravagantly and wastefully. All right, You know what this is like. You understand the word prodigal whether you realize it or not. Here's how I know. Does anyone know what movie theater popcorn tastes like? Right? Anybody like? Anyone? It is better. If you hate movie theater popcorn, would you raise your hand? Is there a couple people? Are you, maybe you're allergic to it? I, I hope. Because it's delicious. It's amazing. And you know what? The, and then these, there's, they make these theaters now where you have control over how much butter goes on the popcorn. Are you kidding? That's terrible. <laughs> and it's awesome. It's like, ah, oh, man. That's neither here nor there. But if you've ever bought popcorn from a movie theater, you know what prodigal is, right? I mean, what, what, is, this, is, this like the, is this like the Boy Scouts and this is a, like we're raising money with this popcorn? Is there a reason it's 10 bucks for a, for a bucket? I mean, this better go to a good cause. It doesn't. The markup on the popcorn that you eat at the movie theater is ridiculous. And the best thing you can do is hopefully have, get the one with the refill and go just chow down so maybe you get closer to making your money's worth, right? Never mind to any of you who are already trying to make New Year's resolutions after you ate too much at Thanksgiving. I apologize. But it's delicious. But it's also extremely extravagant. There's no reason that, that like milk duds should cost five bucks at a movie theater. There's no reason. And it's a half-empty box. And, and there's only one way to know it. Once you buy it, you're like, I, I'm never doing that again. It's extravagant. That's prodigal. It's, it's just lavish. It's, it's luxurious to the point of absurdity. Um, you know prodigal, for example, you know, have you ever bought a hot dog at a ball game? Like a professional sporting event? Try to buy anything from the concession stand? Are you kidding? Is it really worth that much? I'll, I'll burst your bubble on a few things. Here's some extravagant stuff. Um, iced tea, if you ever go out to eat, and you know the iced tea costs as much as the Coke, Dr. Pepper, and Sprite and all that stuff? It's like two bucks. The markup on that is like hundreds of a percent, okay? Because like hundreds hundreds, two, three hundred percent. The cost of tea, it's dirty water, friends. It's dirty water, okay? They put ice in it and they give it to you. They charge you two bucks for it. It costs them a few cents to make. That's prodigal, man. That's extravagant. You're paying two bucks for something that costs this much. Whole Foods, thank God there's not one here. It's delicious, great produce, super expensive. Why? Because it's cool. I mean, it's like, you feel like you're special. It's prodigal. That's extravagant. That's luxurious. Like luxurious to the point where it doesn't make sense. Anything that you buy at an airport, right? Don't, don't forget anything and then think you should buy it at the airport. Don't do it. The markup is ridiculous. Here's another one. Um, prescription drugs. Prescription drugs. The markup on prescription drugs, I know there's some pharmacists in the rooms and I apologize, I love you, but the markup on most prescription jug, drugs is, I'm not going to look at them, is anywhere from about like let's say about 20 to 30, up to about 30,000% on name brand prescription drugs. Like the cost is this and what you pay. That's lavish, man. That's luxurious. That's prodigal. So you know that this, this picture of this luxurious giving, I mean, diamonds, hello? What is it? It's rare and it's shiny. What are we, cavemen? I mean, bleh. I mean, it's... It's ridiculous. It's in, in the mar- and, and there's a market value that may or may not change. And then there's the markup, right? Because you bought it from a particular place that doesn't have, you know, it's at Zales. He went to Jared. Yeah. And I'm guilty of this. Look around my daughter, excuse me, look at my wife every time you see her. She's got some shiny ice on her. And that was a ridiculously luxurious thing. Yeah, I wanted to show that I loved her, but let's be honest, that's a terrible investment. Diamonds? Bottled water at an amusement park? And, then, and they can be, it's so hot. It's $18 to bottle water. Yes, I want it. I mean, this, this idea of luxurious living, this is us. This is us. This is not, even though the word prodigal seems like it's something different, it, this is us, man. This is, this is us. I would add to this list in the last month, anything at Disneyland just I, I, this is just me, and that's this is where this gets me right now. Um, anything at Disneyland, anything, even just get in Disneyland, Disneyland. Let's let's call it Prodigal Land, because it is luxurious and lavish. But I want you to see this picture: is that the son runs out, and he says to his father, "I hate you." And I want you to see this picture: he turns his back on his father to go and spend lavishly. I want you to see that picture. He turns his back on his father, says, you're as good as dead to me. He turns his back, and then 
runs away and spends ridiculously all of the inheritance. I mean, even just think of what he's implying there. Hey, God, you know, if, if, if God is our Father here and, and the Father here is a picture of God, think of what he's saying about the Father and think about what it kind of is implying about us as, as we run away from God. He's saying, hey, Father, you're only worth the money that you give me. Oh, and by the way, that money isn't even worth putting in a bank. I'm going to throw it away. And the older brother hints at what he knew. He probably knew exactly what he spent it on. Prostitutes, strip clubs, ridiculous things. Wasted the money. Wasted his inheritance. Turned his back on the father to go and live a luxurious life and just spend luxuriously and lavishly. But then he gets to this point. And notice what happens. He gets to the point where he's eating with the pigs. Pigs, mind you, for this religious audience that's listening to this, this would have been the most disgusting, most vile, awful thing. Now, in the back of your minds, I hope that I've taught you well, and you remember the bacon chapter, Acts chapter 10, right? Pigs, the nasty, horrible thing, all of a sudden become clean, reminding us that God can look at anything, and if he can make something as beautiful as bacon out of something nasty that wallows in its own you-know-what, God must be doing something special here. And so here's this guy, and he's living with the pigs, and I mean, if, if pigs wallowing in their you-know-what aren't bad enough, imagine what the pigs eat. Slopping the hogs is, is a way, is a nice way of saying, like, feeding. Slopping the hogs. And so he's, he's down there, he's looking at the pig slop, and he is so hungry, he's in such dire need that he begins to think that what the pigs are eating looks delicious. Ever been there? Ever been so low that that thing you swore you would never do, you now regret doing? Ever been in that situation where you're like, oh, I'll never do that. I'll never be like that. And then you find yourself at the lowest of lows. It says that he realized that the thing that he probably swore he would never do all of a sudden came to his mind. It says he came to himself, literally came to his senses. And he began to realize, man, I've taken everything from my father. I've turned my back on him. And look, wouldn't it even be better just to be a hired servant in my father's house than it would be to be suffering here in this far away country wishing I could eat the things that the pigs were eating? And so he comes up with a plan and, and immediately it says he came to himself, he realized what was going on, and he arose with a plan in mind to confess to his father and he turned back toward the father. And there's this picture, it's this I don't know if you caught it, but it says that while the son on his way home was a long way off. I want you to catch the significance of those words. While the son was a long way off, the father saw him. The only way to see things from a long way off is to be looking for them. Right? You rarely are walking along and, oh, I just, do you see that plane way up there? You have to be looking for it. And what does this tell us about this father? This father, even though he had lost his son and his son had told him that he was as good as dead, it seems to imply that this father had a regular regimen of looking across the horizon, of combing the horizon, looking every day, hoping one day he's going to see something out of the ordinary and maybe that something is his lost son. You got to even picture that he probably had a lot of like false positives. He had probably several times where he was like looking and, oh my goodness, you see that? Is that a person? Is that a person? And someone had to calm him down. Man, that's that's a delivery man. If that's your servant, that's 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 not that's not your son. And yet he still continues to look across the horizon so much so that when the son is a long way off, not only does the father see him, but then he does something crazy, right? This isn't this is a story about an old father. Okay, he does something weird, right? He starts running. Um, picture this for a minute, like he's wearing like a robe and undergarments, right? This is not, no, he's not wearing jogging shorts and, and, and sneakers here. He's, he's wearing like a robe in this particular culture. And he, in fact, he probably is like, you know, you don't, you don't do that, man. That's not, it's not a, that's not an okay thing. And he's old. When's the last time you saw an old guy running? In fact, and when's the last time you saw an old guy running and didn't jump in with him? 
right? Because if an old guy starts running, oh man, something's going down. And yet this guy breaks all the norms. He's so excited to see his son. It says he runs to him. This father runs to him. He's not like your dad and mine. He's looking. He's not wanting to run to rub his nose in the mistakes that he had made, but instead he wants to run. It says he kissed him and he hugged him when he embraced him. In fact, the the Greek implies here a continual kissing, like he wasn't just kissing, but he was like really kissing, right? This is is a big deal. My my children are almost to the age. We're like, Dad, stop it. Quit it. Quit it. Stop doing that. And then that which means do that more, Dad. Do that in front of my friends, even until I'm 18, right? That's what that means. That's what I'm going to do. And this is what this father does for this son. He not only kisses and embraces his son, but he continues to do it. And he throws a party. Instead of saying, hey, son, you should know better. Shame on you. He says, guys, get the band. We need a party planner. Let's, let's, let's get together a celebration. My son, he was dead, and now he's alive. It says he also gave him a ring. Did you catch that? That'd be like if your son squandered your property and stole it all. And for, for this particular time, ring would be like access to your bank account. A person who has the ring of a particular family can make purchases, can make agreements, can enter into contracts, and they can sign it with a signet ring. The seal of approval is in that ring. And for that father, just, just catch the, the subtext here. He's like, hey, not only am I glad to see you, but hey, get, here's the access to my bank accounts again. Yeah, I know you stole most of, your, all, all, most of my money so you could run off and do and, and waste it. But guess what? Here's, here's access to my bank accounts. And on one hand, while the son went and luxuriously celebrated the harmful thing that he's done to his father, when he turned around and the father met him, who was the one who was most luxurious? Who was the one who lavishly spent? Who is the one who celebrated like, like crazy? I mean, I don't know if you've tried this, but like, try to throw a wedding in a week, right? Hey, we're going to have a wedding tonight, and we need a planner, we need a band. Yeah, it, it gets, it's a kind of a markup on that, okay? You're going to want to get on calendar early. And yet this guy's like, we're going to throw a massive party. Bring the fattened calf. We're going to celebrate. And while the son at one point turned his back on his father and went out and lived lavishly, notice when he turns back and the father runs to greet him, who starts to live lavishly? And while the son squandered his money in rebellion, the father throws out a welcoming party to welcome him back. So what do we need to picture about this prodigal? Our God has done that for us. Our God is combing the horizon for those of us who wander off, for those of us who wander off and, and have finally turned to see our God is waiting to run to us. And there's a sense in which, in the same way that maybe the parable of the Good Samaritan, Jesus often lives out the parable in a different way that he tells it. So we often think that Jesus is the Good Samaritan in the parable of the Good Samaritan in which a guy gets beaten and left for dead. He's, a, he's betrayed and left for dead and no one wants to help him. They act like they don't even know him, right? I don't even know that guy. And we often think that Jesus is the Good Samaritan who helped and he is because he has helped us. He has restored us to the Father. And we believe that Jesus is the Good Samaritan so much that we, we found all sorts of different hospitals like St. Such and Such or the Good Samaritan. There's lots of hospitals named the Good Samaritan because Jesus for us is the Good Samaritan who's loved us even though we were cast off. But in Jesus' life and death, he actually has more in common with the man who was beaten, left for dead, and, act, and, and was completely denied by the people who should have helped him. And Jesus ends up being more like the guy who's beaten and left for dead and ends up restoring us through doing that. Well, catch this. This is a beautiful thing. Jesus ends up having a whole lot more in common with the prodigal son. The prodigal, by, by his own sin, rebelled against the father and went into the, he went into a far country. And his way into the far country was through sin. And the weight of his sin, the picture of of the muck and nastiness of, uh, of a pig is meant to show you, like, the weight of sin is nasty. It's awful. He begins to realize how awful his sin is. He begins to realize the consequences of his own sin. And he begins to be down in the muck with the pigs, thinking that is a good idea. And in Jesus' life and death, instead of rebelling into the far country against the Father, 
Jesus was actually sent into the far country by the Father. The Bible tells us that he got down in the muck. Even though he was just like God, he emptied himself and he poured out those privileges so that he would be dead for us. Not just death, but death on an old rugged cross. And he who knew no sin was willing to crawl in with the pigs so that the pigs, you and me, might become the righteousness of God. The way of the sun into the far country is a similar path that God sent Jesus on so you and I would know that he rescues people from terrible places. And our God sent his son, and our God would rather die in the muck than leave us there to die in it. Our Jesus would rather die in the mud with the pigs than to let us die in the mud with the pigs. Our God sins lovingly and caringly, and then when we are restored to him, he celebrates lavishly. He parties, he celebrates. And this picture of turning not only our our back on our Father is is also seen in the turning and repentance as the the Son turns back around to the Father. And the minute that the Son turns back around, it seems that the Father is already looking for Him from a long way off. Our God saves rebels, people who are lawless. And He doesn't rub their noses in it, but instead our God saves people who have already run and rebelled against Him. People who have broken all the commandments multiple times, our God loves them. But remember, This is a story about two sons, isn't it? You see, there's this older son. And this older son, having lost his younger brother, having seen his brother rebel and run run away, having seen his brother brought back and restored, he is so happy, he is so excited about his brother being back. You know what he does? He skips out on the party. Now I have some first-hand experience with this, about attending a party. Um, I've been able to do, I don't know why, but just for where I've been, I've done lots of weddings, um, done some weird weddings, and one day I'm going to write a book about it, and it's going to be called Awkward Parties. Um, again, I don't know, maybe your family's cool, uh, but when you take a dysfunctional family, and then you like, hey, let's have our kids marry another dysfunctional family. Ah, hey, you stand up there and it's good. Yeah, it's, it's awesome, man. I, I get like front row seats to awkward parties. And it's like every time, some weird stuff. And sometimes the most important thing about a wedding isn't necessarily who shows up. But sometimes the biggest attention goes to the person who doesn't show up. Or, this is, it happens all the time, who shows up late, right? This is not you. That's, that's great for Bridezilla, right? This was my one day, ah, and you couldn't. Yeah, I know. Happens all the time. I'm going to write a book and get famous on it, okay? Just, just wait for it. Awkward parties. Get your copies. I'll sign it for you. Because if you've ever been to a wedding and you see dysfunctional families come together, there's some awkward moments. And sometimes the most important thing, sometimes the heaviest thing in the room is the person that's not there. Sometimes it's a loved one that's passed away. And there's this empty spot where the father and the mother of the bride sit here and then the father and the... Oh, wait. She's not here. There's just, there's just emptiness. It matters. But then the best ones are when there's a party and someone in the family doesn't show up. I can't tell you how many times this has happened, right? They skipped out. Where's so-and-so? He's supposed to be here. Or <laughs> the best, and the bridesmaids do this the best. Where's Elsa? She was supposed to serve my punch. <laughs> That's, it's just me. Never mind. So maybe that maybe hit close, hits close to home. But then there's like this big hoopla about like the people who didn't show up, even more so than the people that are there. Notice what the brother does. Instead of jumping into the party, he stays outside. It's not that he was gone and he didn't hear about it. He was there and he just didn't show up. And he says something that's amazing, but I want you to get the picture here. In the same way that our God runs after the lawless, rebellious son who's with the pigs, our God goes after the self-righteous, self-righteous religious dogmatists to save them too. Look what the father does. The father throws the party, but when the older son stays away, the father, it says, 
actually leaves his party. Think about that. I mean, what does that mean when the guy throws the party isn't there? He leaves the party. He's willing to leave the party to go out and to entreat the older son to come back in. So get the picture here. Kind of two tendencies that we see playing out here. This lawless rebel and there's this self-righteous religious person. One of them takes their identity and their ability to break rules and one of them takes their identity and their ability to follow rules. And notice that this father reaches out to both of them. Now, if there's a continuum between those people that are like the rebels and those that are like the self-righteous, you probably, along with me, follow, you fall somewhere on that continuum, right? And so, for example, um, some of you are rebels, you're lawless, um, you're all about self-expression and breaking out and being an individual, even though you're an individual in crowds, but that's neither here nor there. And then there's some of you who take a great, great deal of pleasure in the fact that you follow all the rules. So much so that this guy makes you sick. And those of you who are rebels and you like to break the laws, that guy over there, he seems, he's, think of all the goody, good words you describe people who follow the rules. They goody two-shoes, right? Like it's a bad thing. You goody two-shoes. What? I'm good and I have two shoes? What? I don't even know what that means. But for the rebel, that's an insult. Which one are you? Who do you identify with here? Do you find yourself rebelling against God's plan for your life? You can kind of see this. Like when you picture God, you're like, man, there's just too many rules. I don't, I don't think about all the stuff I have to give up to, to be this person that God's made me to be. Oh, man. Are you that person? Do you, do you tend to gravitate toward all the things that, that it will cost you to be this follower of Jesus? Or, or do you tend to gravitate more toward the older brother who take a great deal of pride in the fact that you followed all the rules? Notice something that these two brothers have in common. There's not as though the one is good and one is evil. Instead, both of them are actually dishonoring to the father. Both of them have a wrong relationship between a son and a father. Both of them, in the end, want to manipulate the father not to love him. And while the rebellious, lawless son wanted to manipulate the father for the luxurious spending that he could get out of it, the older son who followed the rules still wanted to manipulate the father. He just wanted to manipulate the father into doing what he wanted. Think of the way he addresses the father. Why are you throwing a party, dad? Why are you throwing a party? Are you condoning the actions of our brother? He went out and spent all of our money, spent our estate, and he spent it on prostitutes and crazy living? Which one do you find yourself identifying with the most? There's good news for all of us who have dishonored the Father. And for those of us who tend to love the things and the trinkets that God gives us more than God who created them. And for those of us who tend to love the control and power that God entrusts to us more than we love the one who's in control, there's good news for all of us. This God reaches out to us. And then the radical nature of the gospel can be seen here, that Jesus saves sons and daughters, those that have run, against, run away against the Father and those that think they have no need of him. I, I tend to be more religious, right? Order, structure. And that's weird. It just depends where you're hanging around, what you might look like. Um, I grew up as a rebel. Right? I was the younger son, played this out particularly. My dad was a pastor, so what should you do when you're a pastor's son? Everything uh, the opposite of what your dad tells you. Why? I don't know. Again, just prone to wander, Lord, I feel it, prone to leave the God I love. Right? That's, I, I can't explain it, that's, that's just it. I'm going to rebel against. And then something happened. God's, God saved me in, in this rebelliousness. Right? God has shown his grace to me and that the list of things that I had done seemed not to discount his love and grace for me. And what happened to me, and, and this is why I want to draw attention to and, and kind of close on this, is what happened is that I listened to the people around me and I thought the point was to go from being a rebel to being religious. And even now, some of you who are rebels, you're like, ah, I need to get more. No, you, you don't. And, and, and that might even surprise you because the religiosity of the older son is just as disrespectful, just as disgraceful for the father. 
It takes a place of judgment. It takes a place, a perspective that we seem to think and we assume that we have the perspective that God has. We know better than God. God, why are you forgiving people? You know they're going to mess up again. And there's this really amazing thing, and I want to tell you, the goal for the rebellious son isn't to become religious. And if you now, you're like, I don't want to become religious, good. And if you are highly religious, you tend to take a great deal of pride in the things that you do more than what Jesus has done for you. If you tend to boast more in the things that you do, if you feel better or worse based on the things that you do more than what Jesus has done, then be careful that religiosity might put you in the category with the older brother. And the goal for you isn't for you to just relax and become a rebellious person more. You see, the goal for the good son was to go to the far country and to die so that all sons and daughters, both religious and rebellious, would be back in right relationship with the Father. And the great and lavish expenditure that the Father gives to the rebel son is is meant to be shared by both the people who God has saved from rebelliousness and the people that God has saved from religiosity. Celebration is meant to be shared by both of the sons. This parable is a picture of those of us who even though maybe, maybe we tend to take more pride and pleasure in order and following rules, we tend to think we don't need God and I want to warn you, those are the people who killed Jesus. The most religious were the ones who killed Jesus. The rebellion and the religiosity are meant to be put to death so that we glorify Jesus. The way to the Father is not to follow all the rules, and the way to the Father is not to have a great story about how you broke all the rules. Instead, the way to the Father is through Jesus who loved rebellious sons and self-righteous sons so much that he was willing to crawl in with the pigs and die in their place. So there's good news. You like breaking rules? Our God loves saving people like that. You like judging people who break rules? Good news. Our God likes saving people like that. You take a lot of pleasure in doing things that are wrong. You take a lot of pl- you really enjoy breaking the rules. You like it. It's like living on the wild side. I have good news. Our God saves people like that. He gives them new joy and new identity greater than any joy created in this world. Maybe you really like judging people who do that, right? Maybe your favorite thing to do is to talk about all the bad things going on in the world. You find yourself liking the good old days? Ecclesiastes has words about that, right? If you tend to like the good old, de- good old days because you think people these days are so rebellious and so terrible, careful, you might be with the older brother, all right? And I have good news for you. God loves saving people like that. Rebellious people tend, to, the younger brother tend to gravitate toward more cities, right? That's where kind of the crazy behavior tends to thrive, right? The older brother tends to thrive more towards smaller towns. There's kind of a public shunning of that kind of behavior. And I have good news. Good news that our God saves both of those people. Our God saves all of those people and gives them a new identity and new joy that's greater than the joy that comes from having fun in God's creation and greater than the joy that comes from judging people who do. Our God saves both of those people, both the rebellion and religion that fail to give us joy God gives to us freely through Jesus Christ. So what do we do? You're a rebel? Pretty simple. You've turned your back on God? Look at the picture here that Jesus gives us. Just turn around. Turn around. The Father is waiting. The Father is waiting to run and grab you and celebrate your return. He's not going to rub your nose in it. He's not going to remind you the time you turned your back on Him. Instead, He's just going to celebrate that you turned your back toward Him. Maybe if you're more characterized by bitterness and judgment, I have good news for you. If you would define yourself as a critical spirit, I have good news from you. Our God leaves the party so that he can bring you into it. And all you have to do is let go and enter into the celebration. Let's pray.
God, we thank, we thank you for your good news. We thank you for your love and care. Uh, we thank you that you save sons and daughters who have uh, disgraced you and rebelled against you, both the ones uh, of us that have rebelled and just, man, just run away, but then those of us who maybe we, we think we've got it all figured out. God, you've saved us even from that. Uh, you've shown us that there's a better way, that there's, compared to the righteousness of your son, there is no, uh, there is no good standing. Instead of trying to earn our way or rebel against it, uh, Jesus, you've climbed into the mud with us in order to save us from it whether it's the, the mud of religiosity or the mud of uh, just rebellion and lawlessness, God, you have shown us love uh, and you've shown care to us. Uh, we thank you for that. So may this story be a reminder to us uh, of the way in which you lavishly love those who turn away from our rebellion to seek you. Uh, may this be a reminder and encouragement. And if there's some in this room, maybe right now they're in the middle of rebellion and they're they're looking at the mess that they've created. Maybe their decisions have brought them to a really low spot. God, would you help them to see that all they have to do is turn around, man. All they have to do is come to their senses, turn around, and you're ready to love them back to you. And if there's some of us, maybe that, uh, maybe we've kind of swapped and we've gone from rebellion into religiosity, and we, we really take a great deal of pleasure and pride in our ability to figure things out for ourselves. In fact, we tend to lord our abilities over other people. Uh, would you help us to see that that's, that's the language of slavery? That's not the language of sonship. Uh, God, we're not sons of the Father because we've served faithfully. We're sons of the Father because he loves us and has adopted us. There's nothing we can do to take away or ruin the sonship that God has freely given to us in Jesus. Help us to, to repent of the ways in which we've We've turned our back on God by thinking that we know better than him. Whatever we might need to do to respond to, to your love, God, today, may we do it faithfully. Knowing, knowing, God, that you are a God who seeks, you are a God who saves, you are a God who loves the last and the lost. We thank you for this in Jesus' name.